Iconic makeup artist. Beauty industry revolutionary. Entrepreneur. Bobby Brown is all these things and so much more. Throughout her career, she has crossed paths with some of the most accomplished people at the top of their field. These conversations are a look into their inspiring lives because everyone has a story. This is Long Story Short with Bobby Brown. Hey, it's Bobby. I'm sitting here with my uh, sidekick, Michelle. Hey, Mish. Hey. Coming up, my conversation with Jeff Ryder, who is the founder of Harry's, my favorite shave company. But Flamingo, pretty good too. When I think of Jeff, he's really funny. I don't think he realizes how funny he is. He's also really sweet. And what I love about having all these cool friends that are founders is you hear their story. And even though it's a completely different story than yours, there's so many similarities. And I love the fact that he is not done. And he's a serial entrepreneur in in just the biggest sense. There's like a lot of names that he's behind that... I had no idea about. You had no idea that he was one of the founding members of Warby Parker? No clue. Okay, and now Harry's, and then... Flamingo. Flamingo. I I don't know where he's going to stop. You know, he's still really young. I I know it's a lot, uh, you know, having all these companies, but I think he's going to do epic things. So here's my conversation with Jeff. I could talk to this guy all day. As a matter of fact, I'm going to text him when I leave here. I got some questions for him. So it's so nice to see you. So good to see you. Yeah, you don't have anything going on. I know. Right? You're kind of bored. Yeah. We just launched Flamingo at Target. Wait, you just launched what? Flamingo at Target. You did? Congrats. Yeah. Yeah. It's been good. Like at this stage of the game, how intense is that for you? Oh, I think it's emotionally intense to like launch something. You're like, what's going to happen? Yeah. And you're just like, show me the data. I want to see. I want to see. I want to see. I want to see. Yeah. Do you check like like daily? I don't. I, don't. I don't let myself. Okay. When we started Harry's, you know, we have Google Analytics, which is mm-hmm. like a, and I would literally be on being like, okay, there's 36 people on our website. <laughs> this guy's in Texas. He's looking at our product right. page. Like, what is he thinking about? Uh, and I was like, I have to stop this. This I is know, a rabbit hole that no I know, but it's, it's kind of no interesting. End. You know, I, interesting. I spoke to Mickey, you know, our dear yeah. friend, Mickey Drexler, and he checks like, you know, Alex Mills. Daily, yeah. you know, and he's very, he's like so excited. I've never seen him so yeah. excited for a really long time. Yeah. You know, the life of being a startup. It's so fun. Yeah. And scary and awesome and all those things. Well, I want to get into all your startups, but okay. I first want to, you know, go back. Where are you from? Cause I don't I'm from know. outside of Boston. Where? What Wellesley. Wellesley. Okay. Yep. So um, you grew up in the suburbs of Boston. Yes. Kind of. Uh, public school kid or private school? Private school. Okay, because well, you were really smart. Uh, I don't. I'm not. You know, I started going to private school when I was in kindergarten, so it wasn't exactly my choice okay. at the time. I think our local school um, was having some issues, and my parents thought that a private school that was in the town mm-hmm. over would be a better environment, and mm-hmm. so they okay. sent me there. So um, my mom was an entrepreneur. Um, she started a loyalty marketing company. Um, you know, like the cards that you would use at like the grocery store. Yeah. Like she was one of the first people that really pioneered in that space. Well, not S and H green stamps. Uh, no, Something not S and H green stamps, but like like Stop and Shop, uh-huh. CVS early on. Right. Um, okay. And uh, my dad was sort of worked in real estate property management. My parents were divorced, and I we lived primarily with my mom, 
and I watched her go through like a really tough entrepreneurial journey. And she started the company, the loyalty marketing company when I was 11. And in many ways, sort of our family's well-being was dependent on the success or failure of that company. Um, and I remember seeing her go through this and working crazy hours and, you know, um, living kind of the ups and downs of it with her and being like, I never want to do this. This seems crazy. Mm-hmm. Who would want to live that life? Well, then who fed you? Did mom come home and make dinner? Yeah, she would. Yeah. She would come home, make dinner. We had we had um, like a nanny too who would help us. But yeah, she was home and present, really present. But then she'd work all hours of the night and in the morning and conference calls, driving us to school. I mean, nonstop. And do you think that she, um, you know, felt that that got in the way of being a mom? Uh, I, I think she was determined to be a great mom and was a great mom. Um, even though she had an incredibly busy schedule. And I really respected her for it. Oh, cool. And then where'd you go to college? So I went to Hopkins. I went to this wonderful school called SICE, which is in DC, which is Hopkins. And I did my sort of what would have been my senior year and then my fifth year there. And in that time, I started interning at places in sort of the DC policy community and was like, this feels pretty political and bureaucratic. And I just wasn't right for me. Um, and I wanted to sort of do something that had a ton of impact early on. And so I talked to a bunch of people who'd done my program but done other things beyond sort of dc and um and they said you know you could have a lot of impact early on in the private sector um and you know you could work at a place where you learn a ton and you work really hard but you know the work that you do really matters and so that felt really exciting to me i didn't know what that meant i was you know 22 and so i ended up interviewing at bain and company which is where i met my harry's co-founder actually we Uh interned at bain together and they were all about sort of driving results in businesses and having result, you know, having impact early and getting to kind of step up and do work that was really important. And that just felt exciting to me. How long did you work at Bain? So I interned there and then I worked there for two years after okay. school. Was that like 24 hours a day? It was busy, but I loved it. Um, yeah. I think I like, I liked the fact that I felt like the work was important. I loved the people, mm-hmm. um, both sort of the people who I worked for and learned from at Bain, but also... I started at Bain with a class of 25 people and they were amazing people and are some of my closer friends. I mean, my Harry's co-founder is one of those people. And and tell me about like getting the idea for Warby Parker. Warby Parker. Yeah. So so I worked at Bain and then I went to work at an investment fund and I went to business school, which was I think a pretty traditional path. And I got to business school and um, met a bunch of more amazing people um, and I was sitting around um, after class one day with my good friend Neil and another one of our friends named Dave came up to us and said, hey, uh, what do you guys think about the idea of selling glasses online? And at the time I had a $500 pair of glasses. My prescription had changed multiple times. I hadn't changed my glasses um, because I was a student and that was really, $500 was really expensive. I think they were like literally getting held together by a piece of duct tape on the side. I mean, they weren't the most fashion forward things I could have been wearing. And so I said, you know, there's a really big pain point here. I'd love a new pair of glasses. I probably need a new pair of glasses, but $500 is a lot. Like, uh, um, and Neil 
said had worked in the eyewear industry before school and was like, hey, I've been to the place where they make those glasses. They cost a fraction of that to make. The reason they're so expensive is because this one big company essentially owns the whole value chain and there's a significant markup that they charge between kind of what they cost to make and what they're sold for. Um, and I was like, that's not true. Uh, my glasses are, you know, titanium frames and polycarbonate lenses. He's like, dude, it's like metal and plastic. Like it's not all that expensive. And so I was like, you're telling me we could sell a pair of glasses that I would love to wear for under a hundred dollars. And he was like, definitely. And so, um, we kind of had this conversation then went off whatever on our, our way. And I just kept on thinking about it. Couldn't sleep that night. And so I emailed Neil and Dave and I was like, Hey, I can't stop thinking about this conversation. Like, this is interesting. Like we should start this company. And they emailed right back. Like, you know, we've been thinking about it too. Um, and pretty soon four of us got together and said, Hey, why don't we just do this while we're in school? And if it works amazing. And if it doesn't like it was just a business school project. And so was there a contract? Did you guys like how official in the beginning? So, I mean, when we formed the company mm -hmm. at that point, we had to have some form of legal documentation, but we still, you were still in school. We were still in school. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we launched the company when we were in school. Mm -hmm. Um, but to start, like I remember the four of us just went to dinner together um, and we sat down and we're like, should we do this? Like, and what's this going to mean? Like, and I think one of the things that we became aware of was like, it was going to mean that we were going to have to kind of be like family in some ways, know everything about each other, invest in something together, um, probably have to have hard conversations with each mm -hmm. other. Did you all have very different skills? Is that why you kind of picked each other or you were just We were there just at all the, good friends. You were just there at the right place. Yeah, we were all good friends. Okay. Um, so no, we, we didn't have different skills. Okay. I mean, Neil had worked in the hour industry, so that was obviously helpful. The th three of the rest of us had worked in finance. One of my other co-founders had worked at Bain and in finance, same as me. So, But I think we were very different people. And I actually think that that in a startup dynamic is more important than what your experience set is. So my co-founder, Andy, and I literally have like the same resume at Harry's. We worked at Bain. We worked at the same private equity fund. Then we both went to business school, though to different schools. But we were like completely different people. And I think that's incredibly important the way that we complement and with different interests. And I think that's incredibly important the way that we complement each other. And there's got to have been some rift with the four guys. You know, we made a commitment to stay close friends, uh -huh. and we all are really close friends still. Still. And and who and how closer so how friends? Long, how long were you with Warby? Like you graduated school and you just went right into working. Yeah. On Warby. So, no, so we built Warby. So we started working on Warby in late 2008. We launched it in early 2010. We were still in school. So we were literally in our second year of business school. We turned the website on, go to class. And it was this crazy experience. And then it just completely <laughs> exceeded our expectations. So who did the shipping? We had a 3PL. Okay. We had one employee who was, who now runs our entire CX team. She was the wife of one of our classmates, an amazing CX, person. CX, what's that? Customer experience. Customer experience. Shouldn't that be CE? Just saying. Okay, whatever. Okay. <laughs> uh, sure, CE. She okay. now runs our C, newly <laughs> branded CE team. <laughs> and mm. um, and she has like 100 people report to her today. And her mm. early job descriptions was answer phone while we're in class. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, and it's been an amazing sort of experience for, for all of us. Um, but, you know, we went to class and we started looking at sort of the analytics on the site and people just started coming and ordering. And all of a sudden we were sold out and had to figure out what to do and hire people and build a team from our apartments. And kind of the business just but grew up But who designed the glasses? We did. And did you go to China? Uh-huh. 
You all you all went together Neil to China. Okay, you went to China to get them. You in. just knocked on some. No, we had some relationships. And so the one thing I learned about being an entrepreneur yeah. is that you've just got to ask everyone you know for help. And so we did that, and we found out where the best eyewear in the world was made, and it's being it was being made with Italian acetates, but being assembled in China. And so we 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 went there and we went to the and we literally went to the factory and said see these glasses that are getting made for $500 we want to make ours on the same production line and we didn't what i think we had was a fundamental insight early on at Orby Perkins that was very helpful that was there were kind of two types of people who were at the time glasses wearers there were types of people who wear wore glasses that really kind of blended into their face mm-hmm. and they did there was you know don't need to sort of show off that i'm wearing glasses i just wanted to feel natural and there are types of people at the time like I think both of us who are wearing glasses as a fashion statement and saying, I actually want to sort of have this augment my appearance in some way. And I felt like we had to make a choice and we decided to choose the latter. So we then sort of really wanted big, bold acetate styles. And so we looked at what was in the market. Well, you have a lot of really delicate things too. Today. Yeah. yeah. But I think we okay. still, we have a, gotcha. we have a range. I think we were probably a little bit bolder to start. Um, and so we thought about what, what the different face shapes were, what we had to fit, different sort of shapes of glasses, and then tried to have a perspective on design and style. And we actually yeah, designed them ourselves. And then when did you guys move into the first Warby Parker office? So the first Warby Parker office, I think probably technically was Neil's apartment in Philadelphia, yeah. all of our apartments. And people were working on our couches in our living room, just, you know, answering you phone calls. And those days? I think we have some. Oh, I wish we had yeah. more. Um, yeah. I think if there's one regret I have really at Warby yeah. Parker is that we didn't take time to really document everything that was going on. Yeah, I've always been a nutty photo person. I, I yeah. know that about you, and I yeah. really respect it. I yeah. wish we did more. At Harry's, uh-huh. what we do is uh, we have this thing called Groom Service, which is a weekly newsletter that gets edited and sent out by people on our team. And it's essentially like a photo essay of what happened this week uh-huh, with like cool. funny captions. Oh, cool. So yeah, It's so funny. Yeah. No, I mean, you could tell if you if look at any of my Instagrams, I'm always going back to the archives because I see things, I'm like, holy shit. When did that happen? I know. Oh my God, do you remember that? And I just put it up and people love it, you know? So. Yeah. But well, you could start now. Yeah. You're still in the early days of whatever you're doing and you don't even realize that. You are still in the early days. So for you guys and then did two of you guys- Left. Left. Yeah, so we Why? graduated from business school. Right. Why did two of you guys leave? So- um, it's It was like I a think booming business. By, I mean, not at the time. No, but it was, you know- it was, well, it was getting started. People right, really it liked it. Started. And they were super yeah. excited. Okay. But um, I think there were kind of a couple dynamics. The first was for me, I had worked at a private equity fund before business school. They'd paid for me to go to school. And so I had to go back. And I was always going to go back. And there was sort of the financial piece. But that aside, like I felt a ton of loyalty to the people there. Like they believed in me. They gave me an offer to come back after school. That was like a special thing. And I was just going to honor that commitment. And so when we started Warby Parker, I was very clear that I, I was never going to stay full time. So that I think was an easy choice for me. And one of my other co-founders, Andy, really was interested in investing. He loved sort of the idea of Warby Parker, incubating it, driving a lot of the initial thinking, helping to get it set up. But as he thought about what was going to really be something that he'd be passionate about, he was excited about lots of ideas. Um, and I actually at the time thought only one of us should stay and run it. I'd run it alone in the summer. So my other co-founders had had internships and I'd done it alone. And I thought it was great. Like I could make all the decisions. I didn't have to check with three other people and I would just go. I thought that that was sort of liberating. And Neil and Dave, my two co-founders from Warby Parker Day who have done like an unbelievable job and I've got so much love and respect for them. 
they both said we would love to stay and build this company and they had very complementary skill sets and I think they're both like exceptional people and so it was a pretty easy choice for us at that point to be like great you guys stay and run it we'll take a step back we'll be on the board I think the one thing I didn't appreciate um was how much I would miss it and mm -hmm. I missed it a lot early on so I you know you kind of have this crazy experience all of a sudden I left I literally Stop working at Warby Parker. The next day I took a flight to Cleveland to go look at buying like, you know, an industrial distributor or something as part of this private equity fund. Yeah. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, what am I doing here? Like, yeah. and I'm literally looking at everything we're doing at Warby Parker and engaged in all the decisions that we're making still. And then spent a lot, ton of time trying to build the team to help support my co-founders and replace me. And through that process, I think I had a good A-B test. Uh, and I think that A-B test taught me you know, an entrepreneurial experience and kind of an investing experience that what I really wanted to do was do something entrepreneurial again. What's an A-B test? So you've kind of got two, you're, you're testing two things against two each things. other, okay. A versus B. You have all that lingo that whenever I'm on the phone with you, I it's, I should really just send you my notes sometimes because mm. I write all I these could, notes down, all the things you say, and I'm, you know, I'm like not the greatest listener. So I'm, and then I look at the notes later, like, and I'm like, what, what is the an hell is he talking about? Or what? Okay. Sorry. So that's okay. You just need to do a, a glossary. A comparison test, yeah. You need to do a glossary for entrepreneurs. Okay. Yeah. I'll work okay. on that. All so right, the good. first part of the glossary, yeah. A-B test, is I think right. a comparison test of gotcha. two alternatives. Okay. And so when did you get when did you get the idea for Harry's? Harry's. So I was back working in investing, and Andy, my Harry's co-founder, called me Um and said, actually, he didn't call me. He G-chatted me. We okay. say he called me, but like, let's <laughs> be, we'll be 100% transparent right. here. He okay. G-chatted me. I was like sitting at my desk mm -hmm. and I'm, I get this pop-up on Gmail. It's like, hey man, I just went to a drugstore. I waited for 10 minutes for someone to unlock the case where the razors are being held. I paid 25 bucks for four razor blades and some shaving cream. That doesn't feel good. I'm looking at my package. I got a picture of a blade flying over the moon. None of this makes any sense to me as a customer. Could you take what you guys learned to Warby Parker and do it better here? And I was like, that mm. sounds like a really good idea. Uh -huh. so I was actually immediately interested. I was like, wow, your experience resonated with me. It feels like there are, this experience doesn't feel great for me as a customer. And I don't know exactly why this is the way that it is, but it doesn't feel like it should be impossible to build something that fixed this for people. And how'd you come up with the name Harry's? So Harry is a grandfather figure of mine. We love the idea of shaving being passed down from grandfathers to fathers and fathers to sons. And so we made sort of a list of all the seminal sort of male figures in our lives. How'd and you get the name? But how'd you get the name Harry's? Like, so, so, so we literally looking at the name. So I had this yeah. guy Harry's on a list and we're like, Harry, can we call it shaving grand Harry's? And we just sort of started laughing and we're like, that's exactly what we should call it. So you had a list of things that, that were available? No, no, no. Just individual people okay. who were like, you know. Right. Their first names, but then you had to go Get trademark the it. Yeah, yeah. So the, it was, was it available? Yeah, trademark was available. Harry's was available in men's personal care. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then we could buy the website. Okay. Because my friend Craig has a company called Hello. Yeah. I'm like, you got that name? It's like crazy. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, I think I think it was possible. All right. Thank, thank goodness. Well, first of all, I love the design. Where did the design come from? The what? Design? The the handles. Yeah, so um, we worked with a really talented designer on the initial handles, and then now we have a whole team at Harry's that does industrial design. I think they're some of the most talented people I've I've ever gotten to work with. Um, we, you know, we kind of looked at the razor handles that are that are out there on the market, and frankly, they weren't something that we were super proud to use ourselves. And so we said, okay, we feel like we have to go back to basics here, and so we started to think about, well, like, what are 
the instruments that are both ergonomic but also can be beautiful that you would sort of want to use yourself. And so we started looking at fine knives and pens and built like a whole mood board around that and said, so like, could we make something that kind of feels like this but still has all of the proper shaving ergonomics in it? That was kind of our brief. And then how did you find the blades? So we went to Germany. Okay. We found a factory there. What we learned really early was that razor blades, having high quality razor blades for a shaving company is incredibly important. Now that may sound Mm self-evident, but you know, razors are like a knife that you take to your face every day. So like they've gotta be really good. And we almost killed the idea because we weren't sure we could make blades that would be good enough that we'd be proud to sell. The big companies in the industry made all their own blades. So Gillette makes all their own blades. Schick makes all their own blades. Like, well, is there anyone else out there that can make a really, really good blade? Um, and so I became obsessed with how razor blades were made. And I was literally um, like on a shaving blog one night, just like reading reviews from shaving enthusiasts who use those double-edged blades, you know, like the ones you screw into your grandfather's safety razor or whatever. And they started talking about this factory in Germany that made some of the best double-edged blades in the world. And I was like, well, what is this like mythical German place? And so I kind of Googled it and found it. And it looked like they made not only double-edged blades, but blades that were more modern that went into sort of you know modern shaving systems. And I was like, oh, this could be really interesting for us. And I mean, the whole website was in German. There was no sort of like LinkedIn connections that I could get to, you know, connect into this factory. So, you and just so flew finally, there? no, we called them. I called mm-hmm. them first and yeah. then I flew there. But, and I said, hey, we started this company called Warby Parker. It's had some success. I think there's a really exciting opportunity to, do something similar in you know men shaving and personal care um and we need a partner do you want to talk about partnering and can i get some of your products and after like three or four conversations we finally convinced them to send us some razors because they weren't selling in the u.s at all they're only really in germany and so i really remember like you know i got through i was so excited i ran took a shower shaved this was like my life at the time yeah um and I walked out with my, and I talked to my wife and she's like, so, and I was like, these are good. Like this will, this will work. Um, and of one. So are they still your partners or did you yeah. end up buying them? We bought them. You bought them. Yeah. Okay. So still our partners, but not okay. part of our company. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. So we launched the company um, and what, with what that year, product. what year did it launch? 2013. Okay. We launched the company with that product. Um, it took us six months to sort of build the relationship with Germany and actually get them to, to sell to us. They used to, and we had to build a lot of trust there. I mean, when we started, they called us the American Internet Boys. Like they would email each other in German and uh-huh. we would Google Translate and be like, the American Internet Boys would like to come to Germany uh-huh. and like, you know, order some razors. That's so funny. And so it took us time to be like, we're serious. We're going to do this. And we you know, did everything that we said we were going to do up to buying the factory. And, you know, we when we started the, to form the relationship with them, we were pretty clear that, hey, like, I think there's a pretty interesting opportunity for us to vertically integrate these companies at some point. Everybody else is vertically integrated and we're building a brand that we hope people will love and you've got a product that we think people will love and those two things should kind of work together. Right. And then when we launched... Um, were you still at Bain or did you... No, no, quit? I had left. You, and you did, okay. I was so working. this wasn't your side hustle. This was my hustle, okay, hustle, fine. yeah. Full hustle. Gotcha. Um, and so we launched and... Um, and people really liked the product and we were selling a lot more than we thought we would. And we went to Germany and said, okay, we ordered a million razor blades to start. We need 90, we need 10 million razor blades and we're going to need 20 million. So your million. first order was a million razor blades? Yeah. How did you even know that? that I mean, so we, I would have th- started with 500. I know. So, and I would have probably too. However, 
there's two things we need. One, we can never run out. If we run out of razor blades, like our business and a razor sort of recurring. And I guess they don't go bad. It's not like other things. They don't go bad. The second issue was we needed to prove to Germany that we were legit. And so we said, we're going to buy a million razor blades. That's how we're going to show you we're legit. And you had early age investors. Right? We had early, no money at the you time. You had none. Yeah. So we said, here, we signed a contract. We bought a million razor blades. We had, didn't have the money. And then we came back to New York and we knew a bunch of people. You know, I had relationships with people who had helped invest in Morby Parker. And we showed up. We like built the business plan kind of on the way home. And we showed up with a business plan, a contract. And we said, we just bought a million razor blades. Here's the business plan. Uh-huh. Will someone give us the Help. money? Yeah. yeah. And, and they luckily did. they did. Yeah. Yeah, because of your success at Warby Parker. That helped a lot. And yeah. I think because the the opportunity here was interesting. Right. Because they felt, I mean, I think we had this early page at Warby Parker that I think about a lot. And I literally copied and pasted it when we were building the plan for Harry's. I didn't have a lot of time to build the Harry's plan, right. as I mentioned. So it was easy to copy and paste. But it said big market, sort of um, really high margins, you know, sort of a significant difference in the cost to make a product and the cost to sell it unproven online marketplace opportunity to create a completely differentiated brand and he kind of looked at those things i was like what's the same thing did you have a design at that point we had an idea for harry's but not final design okay. and the but idea not for even harry's, no but even like the the you know the type and the visuals not none of that no but with the idea that we had which i think was helpful enough was that if you thought about the existing shaving brands they all felt super perfect and cold like be the best, a guy with a six pack and a perfect jawline looking off into the distance, okay. shaving while like a girl rubs his face and like, we're going to be like the warm, friendly, approachable, relatable Harry's. Guys. So describe your early like visuals. So I think about them, I guess I do a couple of things. One, like we pick a, we picked a font that was sans serif mm-hmm. because we wanted to be clean and simple and approachable. Right. Mm-hmm. We have a woolly mammoth that we started with like a sketch of a woolly mammoth that was literally found like a cave painting and then right. we kind of redrew it in a little bit of modern sense but our name's Harry's we should have a woolly mammoth we had razor handle colors that were um we felt like warm and masculine not black and gray and you know stark they were I love navy. the orange yeah. I have the orange the brown and the silver yeah. and I leave them out because they're so pretty thanks and the orange is really interesting so it's very we Hermes were, there's an H on it I'm like it's my Hermes H, yeah and then the yeah. and then we have an H we have this funny apostrophe in Harry's mm-hmm. and I always loved the apostrophe yeah. yeah and so we needed sort of something to put on the razor handles I felt and I was like what if we did H apostrophe and so all these kind of little things came together in a way. And I love this part of brand creation. It's like every day you're just kind of adding a little element to the brand. Like you've got a mammoth and a nature apostrophe and then these color palettes and a kind of whole world gets built over time. But I think that's being a creative entrepreneur. I mean, and that's yeah, the, I, and I exactly love that. what you are. And uh, But is it true that like two months after you launched, Gillette sued you for yeah. like, hello, everything is going amazing, amazing, you're excited and then you get hit with this lawsuit? Was there any merit to their lawsuit? No. I mean, it was a, so um, I was driving uh, with my wife, Laura, and our, we had a young son at the time. Um, It was our wedding anniversary. We're going to like Connecticut to the woods, just kind of like hang out, family time. And Andy calls me. He's like, well, I got good news and I got bad news. Hmm. I was like, okay, bad news. He's like, we got sued. I was like, what's the good news? And that actually wasn't an actual lawsuit. We were sent a letter that was threatening a lawsuit. Gotcha. um, By Gillette. and they essentially were claiming some intellectual property infringement on us and the factory. And I think they were trying to drive a wedge between us and the relationship with the factory. And um, they ended up dropping it. They never mm, actually okay. filed it. And I think they probably realized that like, 
we were a brand that had, you know, a customer following that was becoming real and that people probably wouldn't love like Gillette, Gillette picking on right. this young little we're brand. Really and then we were going to sort of adjudicate that in the court of public opinion. And how much, um, how much do you think you took market share from them? At that point or how about over now? time? A lot. A lot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they were probably just scared. <laughs> they, they probably were. But anyway, I think they that, were threatened that there was yeah. other people. Right. And I think, look, um, it's not the last lawsuit letter right. that we've gotten from, really? from them. Yeah. Okay. But, but now we have a little bit, we have a lot more resources. And to now you have lawyers and things Yeah. Like and we're that. really careful yeah. about not breaking any rules uh -huh. because um, we know that it's a highly litigious, like that's right. one of the things that big companies do, little companies, they mm -hmm. try to sue them. Yeah. And, and what's so. the, what's the biggest challenge that you have just with maintaining Harry's? Um, I think that there are a few. Um, I think one thing I think a lot about is continuing to take like big, bold risks and make decisive decisions and move quickly. Mm -hmm. And because you get bigger, it becomes more risky to take risks. Like it, they just become more expensive. They become right. bigger risks. And, and you've got more people, more stakeholders, and that slows you down. And so I think that's really important that we continue to sort of make big bets. That's what got us here. And I think if we stop, like businesses need to grow and evolve. And I worry that we won't evolve at the pace that we normally should. Mm -hmm. and, and I only know this because I got to do the fireside chat with you yeah. at Warby. And you just have this very cool office, yeah. you know, like with all these like good looking young people walking around. How many people work for you? 300, 300 in New York. And yeah. then we have 600 at the factory in Germany. Yeah. And just the whole vibe of the office. It's just, it's, it's really, really neat. I Thanks. mean, it's, you know, after someone who's worked in corporate America for a very long time, you know, my office, I tried to keep it a little cool, but your my office, office is cool. It Well, um, it's not my office anymore. My office yeah. now is cool. Yeah. Now we have manicurists and dogs and babies. And awesome. yeah, no, Tara brings her baby to work every day. It's a second baby and, you know, there's work that. to do. And and all the interns are, like, carrying the babies, like, when, you know, when they're crying, when she's crying. But uh, it's really cool. And so you're this, like, crazy entrepreneur. You started another company to kind of compete with yourself in a weird way. Flamingo. Flamingo? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, we started within Harry's. Yes. Okay. So one company but two brands. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, ever since we started Harry's, we wanted to build a brand for women. And every time that I spoke in any place, people would be like, first question, when's the women's version of Harry's coming? When's but, Sally's coming? When's Harriet's coming? Uh, yeah, like, exactly. And, and I was like, we love women. We want to do what's right for women. But I still use my Harry's. 30% of women still yeah. use men's razors. I would argue that we have made a better product for most women in Flamingo than Harry's. And now we had a million women using Harry's. And... So why why don't, can't men use flamingo? What's the difference? So they they could in theory. I think the the challenge is that um, there are, men have sort of hard to reach places. So under your nose, squaring off your sideburns, etc. And with a women's razor, because women don't have those same constraints on their legs, you can put a giant lubricating pod on the razor, which is great. Wouldn't um, that be good for men too? Like it would, but you face? can't. But how do you do that? Plus, get under your nose. So that's why we put a, a lubricating strip in men's, but it has to be a little bit more aerodynamic than women's. Right. And so you're this digital brand that started digital, and then you launched your first your first retailer for Harry's was Target. Target. Yeah. 
and um, and you just launched Flamingo at Target. Flamingo at Target. Yep. And we've had Harry's. Harry's at Walmart too today. Yes, Harry's at Walmart. Yep. It's been great. So, yeah. No, it's amazing. And how much has that impacted your digital business? Is your digital business still growing? Or did that like it, halt the growth a bit? It cannibalized it a bit. Yeah. It's still growing. Um, mm-hmm. And it's still a big, big and incredibly important part of our business. Right. The most important part of business. But it would stand to reason that if you're only available one place on harrys.com, that you will sell everything at that place. And once you're available at a lot more places, you know, we're now available at 6,000 stores. Wow. Like, between Target and Walmart, that's right. how many they have together. And, and you're in some department stores. Yeah. Or are you still? I mean, yeah, we are, are you still yeah. Barney's. We have a great relationship with J. Crew. Great relationship yeah. with Barney's. Does, do, do you don't really sell that much of those places? We sell less than we sell right. at you know the big stores. They've got fewer stores, but we try to create unique experiences there. So we have a rose gold handle right. you know, that we sell at Barney's gotcha. that we love, and and uh, and then what's been the most interesting thing about Flamingo for you? Because that think, just launched. Yeah, Flamingo just launched. So the impetus behind Flamingo was, you know, we had all these women using Harry's. We had um, a bunch of insights about women and sort of body hair that we thought were interesting. I think one, you know, you kind of look at the traditional brands and it's like women walking out of waterfalls, you know, sort of a super idealized version of women. The products were these highly feminized, like razors coming out of flowers. The prices were more expensive than men's razors. So like, okay, we think we have a lot of things we can do better here. The other insight that our team had was that women have hair everywhere on their body, not just their legs and their armpits, but everywhere. And they found this amazing quote that um, like 80% of women would give up sex for three months if it meant they had no more body hair. Um, Okay. (laughs) And so we're like, okay, great. So we should create products that actually help solve that for everybody. And so we launched- How about laser? Yeah, I mean, I mean a lot of women yeah. do that. That's great. Yeah. If um, and so, but we launched with a body wax or face wax, and our wax products are doing great, way better than I had initially huh. expected. And okay. the, the whole brand is doing great. But uh-huh. um, but that was a, sort of an exciting thing to see and learn. And how many brands do you think you want? A lot. A lot. I mean, I just have a feeling that you're not just the shave business, and that's your yeah. So our vision for Harry's a company is to try to create kind of a next generation CPG company with multiple brands across multiple categories that fundamentally sort of understand what people need and try to differentially meet those needs. And like, for me, that's super exciting. You know, at Harry's, we've got, you know, over 10 million people who have tried Harry's and they tell us that they like our products more than what they're using before. And that feels good. I think about it, I'm like, that's like hundreds of football stadiums of, you know, guys shaving with Harry's every day being like, this is a good experience for me. And I think you can then literally multiply that across a bunch of categories and have you know, a company that can hopefully create lots of products that would sit in your household that you would like more, that would sort of think about what your needs are differently, design products that you love to use, create formulations that you know you love and that deliver against the things that are most important to you, create experiences, like just deeply care for you. Um, and so that's super exciting and, f- and fun for me to get to think about. And, and we're starting to think about that, which, is, which has been great. And uh, what brands out there do you love? Uh, one of my close friends started a um, shoe brand, sneaker brand called Allbirds, mm-hmm. which I love. I think yes. the products are just like super comfortable. And I think they created this amazing experience for people, you know, that didn't exist before right. um, with sort of recyclable materials. And I think they stand for something that's really good in the world. Um, but all you guys, like Casper, you guys yeah. all came up together. 
you yeah. know, the new. Yeah, we all can and, I was just with Emily at Glossier. Mm-hmm. I think the way that she understands her customer and builds products that mm-hmm. just uniquely meet their needs and talks about them right. and engages them in a true way, makes them feel great about those products. Mm-hmm. Really deeply um, admire that. You guys have like personally, single-handedly killed retail. Just saying. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's a good thing. I mean, in department stores. Like, cause all, not just you, but all of you, like entrepreneurs around your age who've been successful, I don't go into department stores anymore. Yeah. Like, and I, I just think, don't. And I think the opportunity that exists for retail generally is to collaborate with brands mm-hmm. like ours to help reinvent the experiences in a much more customer-centric way. And so, and I don't, Harry's don't really, we have some relationships with department stores. Right. I've spent more time thinking about mass retail but I think what we've been able to do in that environment is to take an experience that we think hasn't been great for guys. If you think about the razor aisle for guys, you've got like a hundred SKUs. You don't know what the difference is. All the prices, it's super confusing. There's nothing new. And like, you know, with Harry's, we had two basic insights. We're going to build sort of these fixtures that stop you and make you want to engage and like, whoa, there is something new. And this is sort of interesting. And then a really clean, clear, simple, straightforward purchase experience. And that worked. I think it helped to change the category there. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's opportunity for retailers and brands like ours to come together and just create unique experiences with tremendous respect for them. They've got, you know, at Walmart, for context, there's like 150 million people who go into their store every week. It's unbelievable. And it's, it's crazy. I mean, these are like the centers of communities and they're, they're amazing at what they do. And so for me, it's always like, okay, you're an incredible company. How do we partner with you in a way that brings our brand to life, but also can help create a better experience in your store? I think that's always sort of the win win. So I don't, I think retail is going to be around for a long, long time. Um, yeah. But department stores, I think, have, have to figure something out. Yeah. They I have mean, to change. I, yeah. I they mean, ha- the great news, yeah. The great news about the targets and the, you know, and the Walmarts of the world, you've got a shopping cart. Yeah. You go in there. It's like, yeah. I need milk. I yeah. need broccoli. Right. I need shaving. That's I right. need pants. Right. You know. Department store is probably more of a discovery experience. Yeah. And that's true. I yeah. think they, I think that's valuable for them to And there's also evolve. something nice about having, I think, a shopping cart. When, you know, like you just, because then you could just like, oh, I need all yeah. that stuff. I department love a store, cart. you can't do that. You got to pay for each department. Then you got these bags. Clearly. I also so. put my kids in like the, I don't know, I'm sure I'm supposed to, but you know, you kind of slide your kids in the little the top area. Of course you're supposed to. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah. My big kids stand in the cart. You know, we push them around. It's great. Well, do you go to the Walmart in New York? Isn't there one in the city? No, it's, there's one no? in New Jersey. We go to Target okay. in New York sometimes. You do. Um, when we get out of the city, we go. I still love going to the yeah. store. And I feel like as a New Yorker, you don't get to do that that often. Yeah. Our version, I think we've got like 100 boxes that just show up at our apartment. So what advice would you have for entrepreneurs that are listening saying, I have, I have an idea. I have an idea. Like, what could you tell them? Because... You're either an entrepreneur or you're not. Yeah. So I think, as may sound generic, but I think there's probably sort of two things that I would say. One is I would say you just got to be all in. Like, I think having an entrepreneurial job as your side hustle is not really going to work. Like, you've got to really commit. And then you got to love it. Like, you have to be so deeply compelled by the idea and the opportunity to go do it that you can't think about or do anything else. And I literally felt that way. I mean, when we were starting Warby Parker, I was like leaving parties at business school to go like research eyeglasses because I just couldn't stop thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't sleep at night. I was so excited. It was like completely over- overwhelming. My wife earlier was like, if you talk about glasses one more time, like I don't know what I'm going to do with you. Like, And so I think, you, I think that's a good thing though. I think you have to feel that degree of passion because it's super hard. Like... And when we were starting Harry's, I literally remember I was working really late one night 
And I was like, this is so hard. And I, and I had kind of glorified Warby Parker by that point. And so I was like, I was thinking back, I was like, was it that hard at Warby Parker? I was like, it was that hard. And so I stopped and I like wrote myself a note. It's like, this is really hard. Like never forget how hard this is. It is so hard. And I still look at that sometimes. Good. You took a picture of that one? I like, well, it's like saved electronically. Okay. I wrote it on okay. my computer myself. Uh. But, but I was like, this is really, really hard. And I think that that is um, an important thing to know. And so you just got to love it and be all in. I think the second thing that I just believe is that I think a lot of people are unsure about taking the entrepreneurial leap because they're really worried about the downside. Mm -hmm. So like I go, I leave my job and my life that's stable. I go do this crazy thing. And then what if it doesn't work? And like, I think my point is like, if it doesn't work, you probably just go back to the job you had before. Probably a better job because you've had a unique experience. You've learned something about yourself. And you'll find a better fit for yourself or you'll be more qualified for the existing job that you had. And so I don't think you really have like that much actual downside. I think the downside that you have is time. Mm -hmm. It's what do you want to spend your time doing? Which goes back to this idea that you better want to spend your time doing something that you're super passionate about. Um, but I think that that's the, I feel like if the entire world is downside focused and there's like, you know, all these studies that have been done around do people want to sort of lean to the upside or protect the downside and like your natural inclination is to protect the, down, to protect the downside. If you're just willing to lean into the upside a little bit more, then I think there's asymmetric value and returns that you can create in that context. Well, you've definitely created your own posse, which is really, you know, your co-founders. Yeah. But who's I your think mentor? that matters. It, I think it matters a ton, but who's, do you have a mentor? Yeah, I think I've got a lot of mentors, I guess I'd say. And I try to learn from lots and lots and lots of of different people. Um, you know, in the Harry's context, we have, we put together like an amazing um, sort of group of advisors and we bring them together as an advisory board every sort of six months. And they're people who just have, and they've these people largely have built retailers and CPG companies who just have a different level of experience than we have had and have seen things that we haven't. And I really try to like listen and learn and mm -hmm. approach those conversations with humility. So for example, there's a guy on our advisory board named Rob Malcolm, who was the CMO of Diageo. And he worked at Procter & Gamble for 25 years. And meanwhile, like we compete with Procter & Gamble head on every day. And he's just worked on hundreds of brands, seen it a thousand times, scaled internationally, built businesses at retail, built our version of direct business. Right. And it's just helpful to get his perspectives on, hey, I'm feeling this, this is going this way. And to kind of learn, um, I learn a ton from my Warby Parker co-founders. You know, it's been kind of amazing for me at Warby Parker. We have a board meeting tomorrow is it's three years older than Harry's. And so I get like a glimpse into the future on a consistent Only three, basis. that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I know Warby's amazing. Um, but I get a glimpse into the future on a consistent basis. And I always come back from those meetings. You know, I talk to my co-founders all the time and so I know what's going on. But when you have three hours to sit down and just like think about something, just have all these ideas and perspectives, I just come back to these meetings and I'm just like, we got to do this and we got to do this and we got to do this and think about this and this could happen to us. And and so, yeah, I really value those opportunities to kind of learn. And and Warby has a thing where they, it it's, it's giving back. Mm -hmm. Like, does Harry's have? Yep. Yeah, so we donate 1% of our sales. Um, which are getting to be actually a meaningful number um, to organizations that essentially further the mission of our brand. And today we're incredibly focused on men's mental health. 
Um, you know, we sort of want guys to look good on the outside and feel good on the inside. And it's a massive issue. Right. Um, and so we've been supporting a bunch of amazing organizations that are focused on counseling and um, sort of improving people's own perceptions of themselves. And yeah, I don't remember the name of it, but I recently heard about an organization out of Philadelphia that teaches the homeless running. And literally they have like changed people's lives huh. where they start to feel better about themselves Amazing. and they become, you know, runners and like, they might need send to it, shave. Send it our way. Yeah. They might need to shave. Great. Yeah. So anyways, I love talking to you. I love seeing you. Likewise. Thank you so much for being, you know, one of my mentors. You've taught me a lot. You have given me a lot of really good information, things that we can't talk about on air. But um, I just want to thank you for all that yeah, and yeah. for accepting thank my you. crazy texts. Because thank being an you. entrepreneur, what people don't understand is, especially I feel really lucky that I have all these relationships with all these like yeah. cool founders. And you can say, does this suck? Oh, my God, what do you think about yeah. this? What do I do about this? Yeah. You know, everyone thinks we're so in control. Completely. We are not. I know. And it's a little bit lonely. And so yeah. having a community of people yeah. who you can talk to yeah. is the best. Yeah, I made a mistake of asking Mickey recently and he a question he actually told me the truth what he thought <laughs> i'm like all right thanks mickey love you <laughs> all right That's nice awesome. to talk to you oh where nice could people where could people find you when they want to see all your brands and see everything you're doing harrys.com mm -hmm. shopflamingo.com mm -hmm. um, instagram instagram yep at harrys okay at meet flamingo okay all uh, right and when's the next uh, brand on November 22nd, 2000. I'm just kidding. I have no okay. idea. Okay. <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, well uh, can't wait to hear about it. Yeah. Thanks for joining awesome. me. Awesome. Thank you, Bobby. So that was my conversation with Jeff Rader, who I find fascinating and brilliant. It's honestly amazing that he had the guts and just the, you know, the gumption to start a business to compete with one of, one or many of the big guys, you know, razors. Like, how did he reinvent the shaving experience? I hope you enjoyed listening to his story as much as I did. And that's it for this episode of Long Story Short. If you like the show, tell a friend. Also, rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions for me, email them to askbobbybrown at gmail.com or you can follow me on Instagram at justbobbybrown and let me know who you'd like me to interview, anything else you want to see. Thanks for listening. This is Long Story Short with Bobby Brown, a Gallery Media Group production.